Well, good morning, y'all. Um, yeah, my name is James, and uh, I'm actually newer to the area. I moved here in August, um, planted Lighthouse Bible Church, Orange County, and uh, that was be actually 19 years ago last month. So um, it's been a while, and uh, now I'm an associate pastor, not a senior pastor, and I'm enjoying it. And what a gift and, and joy to be with you and worship with you. And um, yeah, it, uh, this is very familiar surroundings for me. And so um, I remember setting up all the sound equipment and moving the trucks and we rented elementary schools and all kinds of places. Um, we landed at a church that we rent from, and uh, it's been a, um, a blessing um, to see lives changed. Um, I have uh, my, I'm married to my wife, Sandy, for 16 years, and we have three children. My oldest is a son, Tobias. My daughter, Piper, is the second. And then we had um, the real blessing to... Uh, um, be foster parents um, in Orange County, and and then we had the opportunity to do adopt our youngest, um, Kristen, and uh, so so I have three, two, one boy and two girls, and so uh, thank you for having me. Uh, if you can turn to uh, the ninth chapter of John, John chapter nine, John chapter nine, our text this morning. I should have asked which translation you guys normally use, but um, I'll be reading from the ESV, the ESV, uh, John chapter 9, um, it, I don't normally preach a text this long, but I feel like it's kind of really one unit, and so if you bear with me, and as we read uh, God's word, that uh, we'll read with a hungry heart, John chapter 9, starting from verse 1. And he, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he set, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, he, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received the sight until they had called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? 
How then does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered whether he is a sinner. I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Oh, will you join with me in prayer? Father, what a joy to be your children. We pray for Pastor Angelo and his family as they mourn the loss of his aunt and we pray your comfort for them. We know that we love them and more importantly, you love them. And so we pray that your mercy would shine forth, especially those among family members who do not yet believe. Mercy, Sovereign Father, cause us here to see your mercy afresh this morning, but also daily, hourly, and moment by moment that it would comfort our souls, renew our strength, steal our conviction, embold our witness, cultivate our unity, give zeal to our mission, and grip our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would use me, that it would be a demonstration of your Spirit's power, not of human wisdom or eloquence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, of all the stories in the Gospels, this one of an unnamed blind man being healed by our Lord Jesus, I think is my favorite Gospel account. Now, you may have yours, but I think this is my favorite one. I think especially as a shy, backward, awkward young man, I can identify with a nobody who was born blind, but now sees. Like Apostle Paul, when I'm in my right mind, when I'm not proud and stupid, 
I know the sheer wonder of God's grace for this most unworthy sinner. I can identify with Paul when he says autobiographically in 1 Timothy 1, that though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost or the worst of all sinners. But I receive mercy, Paul says. See, when you come to a place where you vividly see the rebellious autonomy of your past life, that you deserve just wrath in hell from a thrice holy God, but instead you receive superabounding mercy, incredible grace, and priceless and the priceless treasure of God Himself, then you're really astounded and humbled, happy. That not only God saved you, but you get overwhelmed by any amount of privilege that He might grant. That He uses us, changes us, blesses us, transforms us, is transforming us, uses us in ways that we never thought possible or even imagined. It's here, I remember, it's here I have to admit how undeniably loved I am despite whatever else might be going on in my life. Therefore, I can say I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Three things to see in our text. Number one, I want us to see the unfailing sight of Christ. The unfailing sight of Christ. Verses one to seven. The unfailing sight of Christ. Christ sees us. I want everybody to notice the only person's name that is ever mentioned in this entire passage is Jesus. And ultimately, that's all that matters, isn't it? That we know the one who knows us. Life is all about Christ. And that's joy giving. That is real security. It's fitting because in a previous chapter, Jesus said he is the light come into the world. And despite being in constant conflict with darkness, we see him undeniably bring sight and light to a blind man. In fact, multiple times Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied that specifically the Messiah would, quote, open the eyes of that are blind. He says that repeatedly. Here, though, it's happening. The Messiah, the Son of God, has come, and that by believing in him, John says, John 20, 31, that we might have life in his name. Sadly, most still refuse to believe, yet hope shines in the blindness as the blindness of a beggar doesn't stop Jesus from saving him. We learn that the greatest blindness is the pride of unbelief, and even more that the greatest seeing or sight is faith in Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The greatest blindness is the pride of unbelief, and the greatest sight is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you know this, even here in America, despite all our incredible advances and access to modern medicine, a person actually goes blind in the United States every 20 minutes. In contrast, this man, though, was born blind. And outside people who might be born with cataracts where you can get surgery, even then their eyesight will remain permanently blurry. Now, if you're born with congenital blindness, you'll never see, at least in this life, apart from a divine miracle. So when Jesus arrives on the scene of this man's life, everything changes for him. But the greatest miracle was not the opening of his physical eyes, but the opening of the spiritual eyes of his heart in order to see and to believe that Jesus is the one and only Savior. 
So as Jesus passed by, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus, he's the one who takes the initiative. Notice that it says Jesus saw a man blind from birth. He didn't just notice him, he saw him. Jesus was seeing very differently than how the rest of the people were seeing him, including his disciples. Jesus saw him because Jesus loved him. Likewise, I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was running hard away from him in my past. But then I came to know and see Jesus only because he first knew and saw me. I mean, as a young man, I think I was just angry and um, I was getting into a lot of fights and uh, it was just not a good place. And he found me. Amazing grace caused me to see who I was, who I needed, and who he was. We confess the truth of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you can turn there if you want, but I'll just read. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, And you were dead, past tense, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived, past tense, in the passions of our flesh. Then he says later, and were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then verse 5 says, the wonderful first two words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his mom and dad, that he was born blind? Sadly, they didn't see the man as an object of mercy, but as a subject for theological discussion. The wrongly held, they wrongly held to the widely held false theology that personal suffering is always due to some personal sin. So in their mind, either it was his parents' fault or it was even his fault, even in the womb. So Jesus quickly refused them, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Of course, Jesus is not contradicting the universal sinfulness of fallen man. That we know, generally speaking, suffering is a result of sin due to the fall because Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into this world. Yes, sin produces suffering, but not all suffering by an individual is a result of a specific sin they did. Now, sometimes that can be true, unknown to us, causing sickness, even death, as Paul warned the Corinthians. But it's really beyond our scope of understanding. We don't know. So we shouldn't go around accusing people of such like Job's friends. Sometimes there are also consequences from sin, even to the children of parents, because of drinking alcohol when one was pregnant or rejecting God so that the kids wander with mom and dad in the wilderness for 40 years. Or by no fault of one's own, a blood transfusion. But here and in most cases, no particular sin led to this man's tragic blindness to say otherwise is cruel and untrue. And so Jesus dismissed this simplistic theology of suffering as does Deuteronomy 24, 16, which says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers, but everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. So there isn't always this direct link between one's suffering and one's sin. The honest answer, it defies our explanation. It certainly is not karma. Rather, we must heed what Jesus said in Luke 13, that the people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them 
they didn't die because they were worse sinners than the rest of us. No, Jesus says, you, so you too, they didn't die because they were worse sinners. Therefore, you too must repent before it's too late. However, here we are given an answer in this instance that we're given a profound and divine answer. And in Greek, there's a hint of purpose clause in verse 3. It says, so that, or this happened so that, that the works of God might be displayed in him on this day. So that the power of God might be shown forth because of this man's circumstance. That God's power and mercy and grace might be displayed and manifest. F.F. Bruce wrote, God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Look, we know God is not morally responsible for the evils in this world. Sinful people are. Right? We, we put alarms on our cars and lock our doors, not because of God, but because of people. In God's sovereign plan, he nevertheless uses this tragedy to bring about good. So Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day when no one can work. There is an urgency we have as Christians. Suffering is a call to work, not simply to reflect. Spiritual blindness is a call to witness and not to wax on. Our life is short. It will be time to rest when our day is done. The day is for work. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Sadly, though, the disciples, their focus was backward while our Lord was forward. It was not about analyzing how this man became blind, but it was about giving glory to God for such good on this day. And what happens next is really a demonstration of what Jesus had just declared. He sometimes healed by just saying it. He is sovereign. He does as he wants. He is not subject to any kind of instrumentality. Here he makes some mud clay mixture. He puts it on the blind man's eyes. He commands him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off there. More miracles of the blind being given sight are recorded of Jesus than any other category of healing he does. It was thoroughly messianic of God. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever read of a man born blind being healed. Nor did Jesus' apostles and followers ever do so. Again, Jesus takes the initiative. No one asked him to do it. Not even the blind man asked him to heal him. He saw the blind man in love and he chose to give him sight. John inserts a, a little parenthetical about Siloam meaning sent. Sent. I don't think that's mere filler. No word is wasted in our, in our Bibles. Repeatedly in, the, in this gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the one sent by the Father. Jesus, the one sent by the Father, and Jesus repeatedly in this gospel, he will say, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then, my hour has come. Because he was sent by the Father so that we might believe. And so we see these themes. In fact, the word believe occurs 92 times in this gospel of John. The word believe. More than any other book of the Bible, more than entire New Testament, 92 times in the Gospel of John. John wants us to believe. Can you imagine the blind man going there with his heart pounding within his chest with the possibility of seeing? What if this works? Right? So he goes, he washes the clay off, and perhaps the first thing as he lifts up his head is he sees his reflection, right? In the water, for the very first time, he lifts up his eyes to see people around him, the sky, buildings, trees. Before this, darkness was all that he knew. 
He had no conception of red, green, blue, or orange, let alone sunsets or the intricacies and glories of nature. He never knew what his mother looked like. At best, he could only feel the warm tears on her face. This dude goes home seeing. So do you really think he said, well, I should go back at my spot in the temple and resume my begging or someone else might cut in on my business? No, he runs home. He bursts into his house. He shouts to everybody he can see. I can see, I can see, I can see. He came back in wonder and being wondered at. When I became a Christian, it was sort of like that for me. I couldn't wait to tell everybody, my parents, my brother, my friends, my teachers, my classmates, my neighbors, and I did. Some rejoice. Most probably could care less. But my life was changed forever. Matthew Henry said, Souls go weak and come away strengthened. Go away doubting and come away satisfied. Go mourning and come away rejoicing. Go blind and come away seeing. End quote. Thus, I want to remind us all, if we know how blind and dead we once were, then we also know God can send light into the darkest heart. Soften the hardest heart. Cause blindness and prejudice to pass away. And so we should never give up on our lost friends and loved ones. We too were once spiritually blind, but now we see we've been made alive. We're spiritually dead, we've been made alive. Number two, I want us to see in the bigger section, and bear with me. Verses 8 through 34, I want us to see the unwilling blindness of unbelief. The unwilling blindness of unbelief. Now his neighbors, the people who knew the man, were, they were so astonished that some refused to actually believe that was really him. It understandably caused a sensation. It was the talk of the whole neighborhood and eventually the whole city. People born blind don't just come home seeing. I mean, this kind of thing wouldn't go unnoticed today. It's not just that the beggar sees, but I want us to note that his entire appearance, demeanor, and countenance have been utterly transformed. He sees, but he's also seen as a different man. It was so shocking, some didn't believe it was really him. Nah, it can't be him. It must be someone who looks like him. Others were confused, saying it seems like him. Then verse 9 tells us, he kept saying, it's in Greek, it's, he keeps on saying, I'm the man, it's me, it's me. So finally they ask, how did this happen? And the, the man answers, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, told me to wash at the pool of Siloam, and now I see. Well, where is Jesus? I don't know. I don't know even know what he looks like. I never saw Jesus. I only heard him. I only heard him. In some ways, this is a beautiful illustration of our salvation. Christ pursues dead and blind sinners. He reveals himself to those who have no desire for him. And it's not the other way around. We didn't find him. He found us. Or no one would be saved. And only by repentance and the obedience of faith, humbly embracing the gospel, not believing in our works or our inherent goodness, but humbling ourselves before him and saying, Lord, you have to save me. I can't save myself. Is then one saved. In contrast, the Pharisees used this man's joyous condition instead as an opportunity to attack Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus said, You see me, yet you do not believe. In chapter 7, even his own brothers wouldn't believe. Despite speaking the truth, boldly silencing his, his opponents with irrefutable logic and undeniable evidence, 
In chapter 8, Jesus straight out asked them, If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? Why? Because in the last chapter, Jesus said they were children of Satan and that before Abraham was, I am, I'm God. And so that really made them angry. Okay. That he was God and they, so they tried to stone him. And yet, get this, at the end of the previous chapter, he just walks right through unscathed. Right, this incredible miracle, right? They got their rocks in their hands and they're trying to throw it and they can't even do anything. They're like, oh, I can't throw this rock. And he walks right through. They willfully refuse to believe. We say man's natural state is both unable and it's also unwilling. It's both. They are blinded by Satan, but also equally dishonest. Self-deceived, they were lying to themselves. That's how hard they were. The Pharisees again ask him how he received his sight. So he tells them. And how did the Pharisees respond in verse 16? They, they say, this man is not from God, referring to Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. According to their self-righteous man-made rules, Jesus violated the work prohibition of Sabbath on at least three counts. He healed on the Sabbath, which they say, you're not supposed to do that unless it's a matter of life and death. He made clay, which is like kneading his work, like kneading bread. Okay, And he anointed the man's uh, eyes and that's work too so they argue good men don't violate the sabbath jesus broke it ergo he's not a good man so in their tidy thinking he's not from god instead of rejoicing in the mercy of this miracle all they can see is an invented reason to discredit jesus because why they're predetermined not to believe they resolve that nothing will ever change their minds, no matter the evidence. That was once me. I hated the Bible. I hated Christianity. I hated Jesus. I hated being at church. When my father became a Christian when I was about eight, we started going to church. And I, I, I resolved, I'll, I'll, I, when, as soon as I'm old enough, I'm out of here. Until he took a hold of me. I used to think this is just organized religion. It's some opiate of the masses for weak people. And discover that's not true. We are worse than weak people. We are needy, desperate sinners. Leon Morris writes, they so firmly, they, Those so firmly in the grip of darkness saw only a technical breach of their law and could not discern a spectacular victory of light over darkness. They s- disputed with the man and in the process revealed their inward blindness. However, some of the Pharisees asked, because some of these Pharisees will actually become Christians later, they ask, but how can a sinner do such signs? See, they were unable to explain away a genuine miracle with the man healed right in front of them. Everyone knew this guy because he was there at the temple every day, right, begging, you know. They knew who he was. So there was a, a division or literally a schism among them for people always divide over the true Jesus. So they go after the blind man next. What do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes. And listening to these men debate, his understanding is growing. Jesus is no longer a man named Jesus. Now the, now the dude says, he's a prophet. I mean, at least at this point, that's the highest place he can muster about Jesus. He's, he's siding with the pro-Jesus camp, if you know what I'm saying. Once, only we're told in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and he received a sight. Did you get that? It's like, you weren't healed. 
These guys are so prejudiced against Jesus that he's a sinner, that he can't be from God, that it cannot be a miracle at all. Their whole premise and presupposition is irrational, illogical, and indefensible. Their bias controls their entire investigation and interpretation as we still see today. Imagine that, that, that this guy was blind and everybody knew it. But now they're saying, you're lying. They say to the blind, you're, you're lying. You, you were never blind really, huh? Were you? You're faking it. Or maybe Jesus used a twin or a doppelganger and he switched the beggars on us because they look alike. I mean, they're trying anything to explain away the obvious, right? And so they, oh, fine. Let's call the beggar's parents to prove our theory that this is all a farce. The parents arrive and they ask him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Note there are three questions there. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And how does he now see? The first attempts to discredit the miracle altogether. Jesus isn't from God, so it couldn't have been a miracle. Only he is God, and it was a miracle. They act like they've already won the argument. By the way, that's always been the case, and more than ever in our culture, people don't care about the truth. They can't handle the truth. They don't want the truth. They only want to do whatever they want and to believe whatever they want in order to justify and keep doing whatever they want. We love all people. But I don't know if you read, right? The, um, the NCAA sing, uh, 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 swimmer, she, right, is a man who's just blowing away all the, the ladies in the swimming pool. And the, and, the, and the girls, of course, who are fantastic athletes, right? They're like, this is not fair. It's not fair. Everything is backwards. And I think most people know it's backwards, but they're afraid to say anything. This is, this is not new. This is not new here. Well, the parents answered the first two questions honestly. Yes, he is our son, and yes, he was born blind. The third question, they answered evasively. They passed the buck. He's of age, he's a big boy. Uh, ask him. And, you know, they're like moving away. See, they knew the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and they wanted to avoid the danger and trouble their son was facing. They were careful neither to incriminate themselves nor to rejoice for their son. But John tells us plainly why they didn't stand up for their son. In verse 22, it says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, Ask him. Proverbs 29, 25 states, The fear of man proves a snare. These parents were not the first to trim the sails of conviction and conscience to a passing breeze for fear of a storm. It's really sad here, though, when you think about it. I mean, of all people, they should have been the rejoicing in the wonderful liberation of their son. But I think, perhaps, and this is, this is where, this is my uh, opinion or observation. And so this is not something we're, we're going to land solidly on from the text. But I think, perhaps, they had abandoned him a long time ago. Or they're just using him for the money that he can get them. That's why we find him begging. We don't find him at home being cared for. He's not being educated. He's just a burden. 
They weren't willing to pay the price for their son, but being put out of the synagogue, also I want us to understand, is not a small thing. It was an extremely serious penalty most of us don't really understand. If you're put out of the synagogue back in the day, you forfeit not just your social relationships and friendships and religious status, you become a heretic in that culture. And everyone believes in God in that culture, right? You might lose your business. You might lose the ability to buy and sell. You become a pariah. You are seen as hellbound, and you might literally die from hunger or have to move and live among the Gentiles. Humanly speaking, it was very understandable for people to fear being put out of the synagogue. But for the parents to abandon their son right in front of them, can you imagine the pain the son must have felt? Warren Wiersbe insightfully comments, the Pharisees wanted to get rid of the evidence and the people were afraid to speak the truth. Again, that sounds like today. Which was pre-Nazi Germany too. Disappointed by their interview of the parents getting no help from them, their bloodthirsty resolve would not be satisfied until Jesus' head is on a platter. So they call back the man who had been born blind a second time. And actually when I analyzed this chapter, this beggar was actually asked to repeat his story at least seven times directly or indirectly. On top of the Greek implying in several places that they kept asking, they kept badgering him to get in line with their hateful agenda. Yet here is, I think, the most spirited part of the count. He withstands them with vigor. I love this. He calls their bluff. He turns the table on them. He exposes their bias with the utmost simplicity. And he takes these sophisticated elites to school. Far from shaking him, it actually causes him to clarify his position. And so he comes out of this with a deeper appreciation of Jesus than before. They should have, though, been the first to believe. These are the guys who knew their Bibles. There's a lots of irony in this chapter. So they next open up the second interview or interrogation. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And you're like, give glory to God. Why would you say that to the blind man, formerly blind man? Give glory to God. Why, why did they say that? Basically, they're trying to get him to promise that he will never again give Jesus credit for the great thing that happened to him. Remember, they told Peter later on in Acts to stop speaking in the name of Jesus? It's kind of similar. But let me explain. Giving glory to God, when they say to the blind man, give glory to God, has two possible meanings with one purpose in mind for both. First possibility, it could mean in the spirit of Joshua seven nineteen when Achan right, lied, they're basically saying to the blind man, formerly blind man, hey, own up, fess up. Tell us the truth. Admit your whole story is a lie and that you're a fraud because you know what? God knows everything. Give glory to him. You know Jesus is a sinner, so just tell us that. We'll stop bothering you. And we'll even forgive you. So that's the first possibility. The second possibility, which I think is the answer in the more likely situation, is this. Give glory to God because you know what? All Jesus did was put some clay on your eyes and tell you to go wash at the pool of Siloam. That's all he did. We could have told you to do that. So Jesus didn't heal you. It was God who healed you. Right? You, you see what I'm saying? Give glory to God. God healed you. Not Jesus. We know the man. He's a sinner. He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. He breaks the Sabbath. He's not from God. Give God the credit and glory. Not Jesus. 
Now, do you see the irony? Now they're admitting a miracle happened. Right? It's a hypocrisy. They knew it, and they only knew. They knew only God can heal a blind man. And, and so they're the ones that are blind. That's how hard their hearts were. And how unwilling they were to believe. They should have trembled in fear at this point. Especially after the last chapter, and they had rocks in their hands. And he said, I'm God. The fact of Jesus' identity as God incarnate was staring them right in the face. And the truth of Christianity is an intellectual slam dunk. Why people don't believe is not because there aren't answers. It's because it's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. They don't want to. Because they have to change. Despite all the evidence, despite the Bible bearing constant scrutiny of unbelief over millennia, attackers haven't proved one thing wrong in this book. Yet people will persist against it, even now among people who claim to be Christians. They will say, the Bible doesn't say that, or I know the Bible says that, but, but what? Why bother believing the Bible at all then? But I love the beggar's wonderfully authentic and powerful answer. He answers in verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I don't know about Jesus. I got nothing bad to say about him. I barely know the man. But yo, I was blind, but now I see. He's not concerned with finer points of rabbinical law or their obvious politics. He's just overwhelmed by divine love and mercy. And knows that Jesus, he's at the center of all of this. And they respond, we, we know. And we know is emphatic and arrogant. We in our socio-political religious universe, we and not you, dumb beggar. We religious educated leaders know and you don't know. Right? Pride says, I know, I know, I know. Right? Yada, yada, yada. That's in Hebrew. Right? So, you know, my son, you know, saying, saying, I know, I know, I know, dad. No, you don't know. <laughs> Sometimes he does, and I'm wrong. I have to ask forgiveness, but more often than no. Mom and dad correct us, and we respond, I know, I know, I know. But you don't know. And even if you do, there's pride. Right? And sometimes people rarely do they own up. And if they do, they can be say, oh, yeah, amen. And they claim they have thought and believed that all along, only they forgot. It's all a game to save face. But be warned, fellow Christians. Think about this. The Pharisees revealed and st- revered and studied the scriptures more than all of us combined, I think. They prayed, they fasted, they never missed a service, they gave sacrificially, but they were the principal agents of Satan in having Jesus murdered. And they are not extinct. Pharisees occupy the seats of churches all over America. We can all be, at times, including myself, mean and cruel and self-righteous and unforgiving, not kind, tender, humble, firm with the truth, in love like our Lord who came full of grace and truth. Folks like that, or when we become like that some moments, it's because we lost our sense of joy in the grace of God. If we're honest, sometimes that's us. Now they continue on. They ask for the umpteenth time again, what did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? So he answers in verse 27, I already told you. And you would not listen. See, he's not intimidated, nor is he impressed by their knowledge or robes or high positions of authority. As a once blind man, you'd think he's not into outward appearances. Well, he never was. But he was never blind to human nature. In fact, because he once didn't have sight, it accentuated his ability to listen. 
There was no one pulling the wool, wool over his eyes. He didn't just fall off the truck with dirt in his fingers and turnips in his pocket. He wasn't fooled. He knows that they failed with him, with his parents, with Jesus. They have exhausted everything they knew. They got nothing left to do except to weird the poor guy with endless questioning again and again and again. The tactic is to form, force boredom and exhaustion so that they just might catch him unguarded in some inconsistent statement to discredit him as a witness to his own healing. We say that they're fishing for something. For something that's not actually there. Right? Because that's what bitter, partial, hateful, suspicious people do. They conjure up things, conspire narratives, exaggerate faults, attempt to make hearsay and gossip sound like irrefutable facts when it's a load of nonsense, let alone inadmissible in any court of law. They keep pressing, questioning, doubting, and interrogating why out of the hope they can eventually catch a little jewel or morsel they could use against somebody. And the object of this attack is Jesus Christ. Right, they're waiting to pounce on something this guy says, the, 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 the healed man. Say, ha! You said that, but now you're saying this. Ha! But the answer is the same. I already told you the truth. Against their mere say-so, and we know-so, he says, I was blind, but now I see. Why is that not good enough for you? When it is. William Hendrickson comments, facts are more stubborn than unsupportable opinions. I love the, master, the beggar's masterful sarcasm. Verse 20 said, Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? A little tongue-in-cheek. I already told you. I already answered all your questions multiple times. You obviously don't need new information. Do you want to become his disciples? And of course, that really infuriated them. But they kept asking the wrong question. It was not how, but who. It was not how, but who. Just change the order of the letters. It's not, they, not inheriting his parents' cowardice, exasperated with their tactics, disgusted by their prejudice, he brandishes the sword of irony against them. So raging back, pulling up themselves up by their own self-righteous bootstraps, they retreat in defeat after being taken to town by an uneducated beggar who wants to follow Jesus of all people. It says in verse 28, they reviled him. You are a disciple. We're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we know we do not know where he comes from. And they just abuse the guy. They can't even bear to say Jesus' name. They call him this man, right? They were not the kind of people who would admit defeat, humiliated by a beggar, defying their supposed authority. They scurry into their hole with a weak sauce response, right? You know who we are and who we know. You're a nobody following a nobody. The beggar then responds, come on now. This entire time you've been saying, we know, we know, we know, and now you're saying, we don't know? Which is it? I mean, because he says, that's interesting, because this is the first time you've admitted ignorance about anything, and he just rubs it in. I love it. It's astonishing. It's really marvelous, bewildering, remarkable. That's how you can translate that Greek word. That you don't know Jesus is from God. You religious experts can't work out something obvious like this. You pretend to know everything, but you can't figure out where someone who just healed a man born blind actually comes from. Ever heard of a man born blind getting his sight back? Never since the beginning of time. Never recorded in the entire Old Testament. Isaiah said this would happen when the Messiah comes. Brothers giving them a practical theology lesson. And they're losing big time, only they're not admitting it. He says, because if Jesus weren't from God, then how he couldn't have healed me. And I don't know about y'all, but I learned that in Sunday, Sunday school, didn't you? 
So he's defeating the Pharisees with their own previous argument. The idea that God hears the prayers of the righteous but rejects the prayers of the wicked is found throughout the Bible. 1 Samuel 8, 18, Job 27, 9, 35, 12, Psalm 18, 41, Proverbs 1, 28, 15, 29, Isaiah 1, 15, Isaiah 59, 2, Jeremiah 11, 11, Ezekiel 8, 18, Micah 3, 4, Zechariah 7, 13, John 8, 21, Acts 10, 35, on and on and on. God doesn't listen to the rebellious, but he listens to the righteous man. The very idea of giving credit to Jesus was obnoxious to them. Bested by a beggar, they resort to cheap ad hominem. They attack him and not his arguments. They see he must have been born in another sin. They cast him out of the synagogue just as his parents feared. Brothers and sisters, though, they, 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 they cast him out of the synagogue, but they were powerless. And they will always be powerless to cast this man or any true believer out of heaven. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Thank you for your patience. Okay, to the third and final point. Three, number three, the undeniable miracle, undeniable miracle of being found in Christ. The undeniable miracle of being found in Christ, verses 35 to 41. At the end of our text, some Pharisees, they overheard Jesus' loving encounter with the formerly blind man. And they ask, they overhear, and they say, so are we also blind? And we know that Jesus did not primarily to come to judge in his first coming. John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, right? You guys know the verse. Save his son, right? And he says, verse 7, he says, he did not come into the world to condemn the world. So in his first advent, in his first coming, that wasn't his primary purpose. It was to save. Nevertheless, the result of rejecting Jesus rather than believing in him is judgment. John 3, 36, the last verse of that chapter. That God's wrath remains on you if you don't believe. So we are either for him or against him. John loves contrast, by the way, this gospel. Light, darkness, love, hate, for me or against me. Okay. There's no middle ground. It's interesting. Jesus' answer is sort of paradoxical and unexpected. I mean, you would expect our Lord to answer their question, are we blind too? Yeah, you're blind. But he doesn't say that. You see, he explains, if I say you're blind, then you might use that as an excuse. Because if you're totally blind, if you have zero spiritual understanding of what you're doing, then you could claim that you can't be blamed for being ignorant. So I'm not going to call you blind because you're not that blind, right? Because you do know the truth. They were not just unable by Satan's blinding to believe. They were also unwilling by hatred to believe. They were fully responsible because they sinned willfully against knowledge. They knew he was from God, but they dug in and denied it. Therefore, Jesus says, you're not really blind. Therefore, your guilt remains on you. You're not excused. See, this is all about realizing one's need before God. You know, we can always find somebody worse than us. But that's not the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. You know, 999 people will admit, out of 1,000 people will admit they're imperfect. But 999 out of 1,000 don't know the seriousness of that imperfection. 
The self-satisfied Pharisees thought they had it all together, that they had arrived. They would admit they were not perfect either. But they didn't understand the seriousness of their imperfection or the sinfulness of their infection. They claimed to see and to know. If they had truly seen and had known, they would have welcomed Jesus. They would have believed in him. Because they had just enough to know, yet acted against that knowledge. Jesus says, you're guilty, you claim to see, but you choose to behave like you're blind. Therefore, your sin is not taken away. Mankind is not totally blind. Romans 1 says, unbelievers suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There are no true atheists. They're just in denial. But for the blind man, I see, you remember that he, that was never part of his vocabulary anytime until now. But not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. Sometimes we too can act more like the Pharisees though. As Christians, because we can see sound doctrine, we can see the sins of the world, we can see Jesus is the answer, we can see the moral problems, we can see change in ourselves, and then congratulate ourselves. We're not talking about an overfocus on our progress nor lack of, but what we need to remember is that we are unworthy sinners, beggars who need to keep on seeing Jesus. Personally, I feel I, I shouldn't ever be proud that I did this or that. Rather, I wonder why me? Why me of all people? The sinner that I get to live, that I get to serve Jesus, that I get to be here with you as my brothers and sisters and friends, to get to eat and breathe and walk this planet, get to smile over anything, let alone have a wonderful wife and precious children and, and a, an incredible future, rather than getting the justice I do deserve. Or deserved. I, I offended a terribly holy God whose wrath should have been mine, but is no more. No more. It is finished, paid in full. Those who know mercy preach mercy, not the justice. We escape purely by the sovereign kindness of our Savior. We preach reconciliation, not reparations. Well, back to Jesus. He takes the initiative again. Jesus personally, he found him. Right? I mean, the guy didn't even know where he was, but Jesus went out of his way to find the man who was formerly blind. The good shepherd always cares for us sheep. Yes, amen? He knew this man's parents abandoned him, that he was mistreated, he was excommunicated. The man knows our Lord's voice, but not yet his face. He would soon. In the glory of the gospel and the face of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. See, it was not enough to know Jesus' name. Or that to say he was a, a prophet or a man of God or some vague higher being. Thus Jesus asked a very personal but necessary question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man is a messianic term found in Daniel 7. Jesus is the only way. He's not one of many ways. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John fourteen six. Acts four twelve says, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And we believe, belief comes by hearing the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. At the end of this book, she said, blessed are those who, he says to Thomas, right? Blessed are those who believe, right? Who don't, you know, touch my hands and my side and who believe just by hearing the word of God. In the next chapter, Jesus will also say his sheep know his voice. And this man recognizes his voice. 
The man eagerly answers with trembling excitement. Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus says, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man says, Lord, I believe. And the man worshipped him. Belief and worship always go together, by the way. This is the one and only instance of Jesus being worshipped in this entire Gospel of John. How wonderful. Blessedness is not getting a house, growing a nest egg, going on vacation, surviving COVID. Good things. Good things. Praise God. No. Those are our blessings too. You know, I always think, you know, people post, right, on social media, hashtag blessed. It's always the positive stuff, right? It's never like trials that shape them or whatever, you know. But this is not just a... Uh, mundane hashtag blessed true blessedness is to know Jesus Christ that's blessedness if we never had any of those other things like Paul scourgings the tear soaked pages of my bible like mater's dense all my life has witnessed that I am loved by God even when I was exhausted scared abandoned depressed lost all confidence to preach years ago we had a couple leaders stab me in the back. Other leaders in the, the whole congregation stood up for me. But I, 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 I fell into a deep depression for months. I said, I never want to be a pastor again. I want to run away. I want, one moment, I want to drive myself into a light pole. Lord, I want to be home with you. All my losses Jesus knew. All my failures he forgave. All my tears he kept in his bottle. Even for this worst of all sinners, he alone deserves our constant homage, our best affection, our deepest trust, our immediate obedience, our most intimate fellowship and conversation, and our undying proclamation. We should be thankful for so much in our lives. So much. But most of all, our great salvation. I'm beginning to wrap it up here, but let me read from J.C. Ryle. He, he writes, if you bear with me, he says, There's no kind of evidence so satisfactory as this to the heart of a real Christian. His knowledge may be small, his faith may be feeble, his doctrinal views may at present be confused and indistinct. But if Christ has really wrought a work of grace in his heart by his spirit, he feels within him something that you cannot overthrow. I was dark and now I have light. I was afraid of God and now I love him. I was fond of sin and now I hate it. I was blind and now I see. The hungry man eats and feels strengthened. The thirsty man drinks and feels refreshed. Surely the man who has within him the grace of God ought to be able to say, I feel its power. Do you this morning? We're all accountable to our maker. You know, if... God forbid if one, you know, someone you love, they were murdered by some guy. And you're in the courtroom on that day, and the murderer's there in the front row with chains on. And he stands up and he says, yeah, I did it. I'm not sorry. And there's 20 witnesses, and they got a video camera of the whole incident, the whole horrible event of your loved one dying. Judge gets up to pronounce the sentence, and he says, you know what? We're all, we're all human. We all make mistakes. You're free to go. How would you feel? You feel that judge is good? You feel justice has been served? But the, 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 the problem of sin is that we are quick to apply it to everyone else except ourselves before a holy God. 
And God welcomes us in his grace. He gives us opportunity to be forgiven completely forever as far as the east is from the west. We are not saved by our good deeds. It's never enough. He's made a way for us to be transformed. We're, we're all sinners and fall short of his glory. We cannot save ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. We have to turn away from our sinful autonomy, confess our rebellion, and run to him. Beg his mercy and trust and follow him. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer him. He knows that. Drowning people who do not know how to swim, they have to be rescued. And I urge you, if you have not come to yet believe, you know, we're not compelling you or forcing you, but I plead with you. Do business with God. It may take time. I had to answer, ask a lot of questions before I became a Christian. But there are people here who love you and, 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 and love you not just for salvation, but they're concerned about every aspect of your life, your school, your work, you know, your relationships. They love you because Jesus loves you and, and Jesus loves them. Well, let me end by saying this. Think about the blind man being abandoned by his parents, excommunicated from his culture and rejected by his community. He had one of the worst days of his life. But really, it was the best day of his life. Why? Because he saw Jesus. So, moving forward, let's see Jesus. That's all we need to know. Let's pray. Father, the greatest privilege is to know you, to know your Son. No amount of worldly acclaim or health or wealth or security can ever substitute for knowing you. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Thank you for loving every one of us, for knowing what each of us as individuals goes through day by day, moment by moment. Things that no one else perhaps knows except you. That in your omnipotent grace we can cast all our worries and anxieties on you because we know that you care for us. So we humble ourselves knowing that in due time you will exalt us. Time and time again you've proven yourself faithful. We long for your return. We long not just to hear your voice in your word but one day to see you face to face. May we enjoy the warmth of the sunshine of thy smile this week and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.